welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. It's such a gift to be here again, as John said, had the privilege of, we rather, Amy and I had the privilege of being here a few years ago, and as John said, that was before we planted Trinity Church, Nottingham, or as we say, Nottingham. Uh, and um, Nottingham's a city uh, in, in the east, in the middle of the country, just to the east, a couple of hours uh, outside of London. And um, yeah, we've just had such a, a lo- we've had an amazing time in the last three years. But we just want to say, I mean, even as John was saying some very complimentary things about me, we really want to say some complimentary things about you. Uh, principally that we felt so well cared for and set up for what we went and have been doing in the last three years by our time here in that August of 2016. And um, we felt so loved and we continue to feel um, a connection between our church, which many of you till this morning have never heard of, um, and this church, this church family. And um, partly that's relational connection with uh, John and um, obviously with Darren and Alex and also with Brian and Jenny who we had with us for about eight weeks just not so long ago. So thank you so much for everything you are and everything that you are continuing to lead uh, our church in. And it feels like there's a real connection and synergy. We as, as Trinity Church are a church which, who are all about the presence of God. We've become in the last three years and we are becoming a people of the presence of God. And we are learning uh, slowly but surely how to practice the way of Jesus as we do that. So we're about fire we're about formation, and we're also about joining in the purposes of God. We're about becoming good news to our city. And I know that you share, as a church, those core convictions. And I know that Darren, because I listened to it, uh, Darren shared last week about the, the pivotal space that hunger for God occupies in a healthy life. Uh, the healthy life of a disciple. And I guess I wanna, I wanna follow on from that. And I know he launched a new uh, series as he was doing that called Present Future Church. And I guess I wanna, in my own way, um, build uh, a foundation stone uh, alongside uh, what Darren, or at least offer some thoughts, alongside what obviously Darren shared last week. As we begin to think about Uh, or as Darren framed it to me, the kind of church we want to build for the future in the present. As we begin to do that, I want to offer some thoughts. And my thoughts really begin with a story and and just something that happened about three or four weeks ago where Amy and I were hanging out with some, uh, another family in our church, a couple called Amy and Adam. They're really close friends of ours, people that we've been just delighted to journey with in the last three years. And they've uh, they had three kids and they've just are in the process now um, of adopting a fourth child. This little boy, sweet little man. And we were over in their house sort of celebrating with them the arrival of this, uh, their new son and uh, having a meal and all that kind of thing. And, and it was great. Our kids are now at the age where they, they sort of like, you go to someone else's house and they just disappear. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, if there are kids, they just disappear. And look, if it's not your house, you don't care what havoc they're wreaking, right? You don't have to clear it up. You just shut the door, get in the car, and go home to your pristine house. And so we were doing this with Amy and Adam, just letting our kids wreck the joint. And at the end of like a couple of hours of hanging out, drinking coffee, you know, thinking we were young again, uh, we, uh, we left. 
And we got a text message late that night, which I've got to say is slightly concerning. Uh, in, in the first instance, it said, uh, Amy just said to us, look, there's been some graffiti. Uh, do you know who was responsible? She didn't tell us the content of the graffiti to start with, and we just, you know, we did that thing that you do, you gather the family together, a family conference, sit them all down, and, whoa, this is, this is a daddy job. This is a, you know, so I sort of went in, hey, and you got, some of this, by the way, there's some preacher's licenses. Some of these events did happen. Some of them maybe uh, didn't happen exactly the way I'm preaching them, but uh, <laughs> we gathered them out. I always said, look, have any of you guys been, you know, sort of scrawling upon the Joneses' house at all. Everybody said, no, 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 dad, mum, it wasn't us. So we just texted back and said, hey, our guys are at least claiming that they weren't part of it. <laughs> Later on that night, we got a message uh, from Amy. She said, no, I have spoken to our daughter, whose bed it is, and she wrote what was on the bed, and, and here's what she wrote, and she sent us a picture, and here's the, here's the graffiti in question. I don't know if you can read that, but this is a six-year-old girl who is so stirred by God at the moment uh, that she wrote on her bed a prayer, simple prayer, do a new thing, God. What an amazing prayer. Isn't that the prayer of a hungry young girl? You know, she, I, I don't know where, I, honestly, the, the thing that we've been talking about, Amy, my wife, and Amy and Adam is, where did she even learn that language? Like that's, that's, that's in us as a church, Trinity, but that's not language we use. So somewhere she's picked that up and Amy even asked her, hey, what, why did you write that? She said this, mom, I'm not sure why I did it, but I just felt it came from God and so I wrote it. That's something so profound about a child that does that. And I wanna ask the question, I guess I wanna explore the question this morning, what? What needs to happen in us for us to be able to pray that kind of prayer? What needs to happen in us for us to be able to articulate that hunger uh, in such honesty and simple terms before God? And I guess then it's a message about prayer, but it's really about the foundations of a life of prayer. You see, M Mabel, which is her name, something has obviously stirred in her there's some kind of picture or image of God in her mind that enabled her to pray that prayer. Something profound happening in her heart. And that profound thing that was happening in her heart has shaped her view of God richly. This girl, Mabel, believes that the God she follows and she worships is the kind of God who pays attention to the graffiti on her bed. He's the kind of God that's so involved in her life, so close, that he sees her prayers, her six-year-old prayers, and he catches them and he answers them. She's got a vision of God, which I would say is God-shaped and God-sized. And I wanna say that that is key. As we become and, and look to become the church that's required for the future that's ahead of our nations, uh, our cities, We've got to catch a vision of God that's God-shaped and God-sized, ultimately that's Jesus-shaped and Jesus-sized. And that vision of God, our vision of God, whether it's a, an accurate or an inaccurate depiction of God is one of the most important things about us. This is what A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, uh, ominous, important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Do forgive the gender exclusive language here. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So our vision of God matters. And if we're gonna become the kind of church that inherits the future that God has for us, we need to be open to God shifting our vision of him. And this week I wanna talk about the church of the future, which I believe is a church that has shameless audacity in prayer, fueled by extraordinary intimacy with God the Father. Why don't I pray as we jump into our text for today. Father God, I ask now that you would release in this place the glory of your majesty and the tenderness of your intimacy. We want a vision of nothing less than who you are, transcendent and imminent. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you reveal your love to us today. Shape our minds and our hearts. Remake our bodies in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what Jesus has to say in the matter. John, uh, Luke, rather, Luke chapter 11. If you've got a Bible here with you, why don't you open it? You've gone to the trouble of bringing it. You may as well get it out. Uh, here we go, Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, here's how I imagine the scene. The disciples are, have been walking with Jesus for a while now. They've sort of seen some of the tricks he has up his sleeve. They've spent a lot of time watching him. And they know that he is a powerful miracle worker. Maybe even they're sort of exhausted just by the furious pace. Yes, interjected with prayer, but the furious pace of healing. And maybe just the stalling, they're like, Jesus, can we do some classroom stuff? You know, this healing stuff's amazing. The demonic deliverance is fantastic. We love the vision of the kingdom. But we sort of imagined that this rabbinic thing would be a bit more about sort of sitting down and, you know, didactic like, like the Greeks do. Is it, can, can we do a bit more of that, Jesus? Look, you know, John's taught his disciples some stuff. There's some stuff he's shown them that could go in their books. And we're just looking for some content that we could put in our books. We're thinking of gospels. What do you think, Jesus? And almost to humor them, I mean, you know, by the way, this is, this is not in the Bible. This is, this is Johnny's vision of how it all went down. Almost to humor them, Jesus says, okay, I'll give you some stuff. Here's some stuff I've got on prayer. <laughs> when you pray, say, Father. And right then and right there, 
Jesus drops the bomb. And their mouths drop, their chins drop to the floor. And you can just hear the collective gasp. What did he say? Father! Whoa! That's some crazy stuff! That wasn't in John's prayer. This guy's gone rogue. You see, it's one thing for Jesus to talk to God as Abba, as Father. That was the the language Abba, the Aramaic word, the, the way that Jesus would refer to God, his Father, constantly. That makes sense as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, from all eternity. You know, he's got some certain privileges in how he addresses God. Yeah, what Jesus is saying here is, is not just that he gets to call God Father, but that every disciple of his can address, in fact, every person is able to address God as Abba, as Father, with that same language of intimacy and, yes, respect and honor. But that the privilege, the privilege that Jesus is offering people is that we get to dare to call God Father, just as he has done. And that is a stunning thought, but it's one that we miss so often because we're so used to a concept of God as Father. At least abstractly we're used to that concept. Whether we really understand it and live in it is quite another thing. You know this prayer that Jesus begins with this stick of dynamite he just launches is so profoundly simple. It's not a difficult prayer. You know, my four-year-olds can recite most of this prayer flawlessly, if encouraged, with chocolate. (laughs) It's simple. Our church prays this prayer every day at midday. Our alarms go off and we pray this prayer. It's a simple practice that keeps us united when we're scattered over the city. It's simple. And if you're new to church, if you've just walked in, you can pray this prayer and it can be your access point to the presence of God in the middle of your day. You don't need to understand the prayer to pray it. It's simple enough that you can just begin by praying it. Yet it's so deep, it's so rich that you, could, you can't ever exhaust it. You can pray this prayer every day and still not exhaust the richness of its meaning. But it begins with this absolute extraordinary thing that when we pray, we're to address God as Father. And this truth is so close to us that we can't see it. We don't fully understand it. I read a a story recently of a a lady called Bilquis Sheikh or Begum Bilquis. She goes by both names. And she wrote a book recording her conversion from Islam uh, to Christian faith. And the book was called I Dare to Call God Father. And it charts her story from the beginning of a spiritual awakening. She was, as I said, a Muslim woman woman living in uh, Pakistan. She was married to a famous general. They later were divorced. And she began a spiritual journey. She was searching. She wanted truth. And particularly, she she was interested in, in which was the book 
that displayed who God was really like? Was it the Quran that she'd been brought up reading or was it the Bible? Somebody gave her a Bible and she just began reading both alongside the other. After she began reading the Bible, quite soon after, she began to have a series of strange dreams. In the first dream, she spent two days with somebody who she knew to be Jesus. Now, uh, Jesus uh, is in the Quran, so she'd she'd encountered him uh, in the Quran before. She spent two days with him eating and just spending time with him. And in the same dream, she was then immediately after that time with Jesus, uh, taken to a mountaintop where she spent some time with somebody called John the Baptist. Now, she'd never heard of John the Baptist. But in the dream, she was asking John the Baptist if he would lead her to Jesus. And she woke up, again, having never heard the name John the Baptist, screaming repeatedly, John the Baptist. Woke up her whole house, her servants, her children, etc. She was on a spiritual journey. She had another dream in which a perfume salesman arrived at her door and offered her some perfume. And she took the perfume and the salesman said to her simply this, this perfume will spread throughout the world. She left in the dream, she left the bottle of perfume by her bed. And when she awoke from the dream, she looked to see if the perfume was there. But it wasn't, of course, she'd been dreaming. But all she saw by the bed in the place of the perfume was the Bible. This perfume will spread throughout the world. Mysteriously after that, she began to smell perfume when she was walking around, particularly in her garden. She had one particularly powerful encounter where she smelt perfume when she was walking through her garden. And after that, her grandson, who lived with her, Mahmoud, got sick, inexplicably sick. They didn't know what was going on, so they took him to the hospital, which was run by a series of nuns. And one nun arrived in the house, Dr. Santiago, which is an amazing name. I mean, that belongs in some kind of soap opera, doesn't it? Dr. Santiago. Uh, and, and Dr. Santiago came, this beautiful, simple nun, walked into the room and saw Bilquis's Bible. Now, Bilquis was a really well-known, prominent person. So immediately, Dr. Santiago noticed it and said, Madam Bilquis, what is it? Why is it that you have a Bible? And here is her answer. I'm quoting here in the first person from the book. Bilquis said this, I am earnestly in search of God, I answered. And then when the candle burned lower, I told her very cautiously at first, then with mounting boldness about my dreams, my visiting with Mrs. Mitchell, who was a a missionary that uh, she had visited, and my comparing the Bible and the Quran. Whatever happens, I emphasized, I must find God. But I'm confused about your faith. I realized that even as I spoke, I was putting my finger on something important. You seem to make God so, I don't know, personal. The little nun's eyes filled with compassion and she leaned forward, Begum shake, she said, her voice full of emotion. There is only one way to find out why we feel this way and that is to find out for yourself. Strange as that may seem, why don't you pray to the God you're searching for Ask him to show you his way. Talk to him as if he were your friend. I smiled. She might as well suggest that I talk to the Taj Mahal. But then Dr. Santiago said something that shot through my being like electricity. She leaned closer and took my hand in hers, tears streaming down her cheeks. Talk to him. She said very quietly, as if he were your father. I sat back quickly. A dead silence filled the room. 
Even Mahmud and Tuni's conversation hung between thoughts. I stared at the nun with the candlelight glinting off her glasses. Talked to God as if he were my father? The thought shook my soul in the peculiar way truth has of being at once startling and comforting. You see, for somebody like Begum, who grew up in a society that's far more like the culture that Jesus was speaking to and his disciples inhabited, the notion of calling God Father was outlandish. But that's what Jesus tells his disciples to do. That's what Jesus teaches you and I to do. To address God as a good and gracious Father. The kind of Father who listens to the prayers scrawled on six-year-old beds. The kind of Father who holds them in his heart for all eternity. You know, Psalm 56 says, You have kept count of my wanderings, held my tears, kept my tears in your record, in your bottle, are they not in your record? This is the kind of father that Jesus displays to us, his disciples, and yet it's so difficult for us to catch hold of a vision of God as father. And Jesus wants to go even further than just addressing God as father. He wants to address in this text that we began to read Luke 11, Not just the name of the Father, but the character and identity of the Father. And he does it by teaching them a parable. Here's the parable from verse five of chapter 11. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's already locked. My children are in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though we will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Okay, the situation here is that somebody, a journey, somebody on a journey has come to the first person begging for bread. They're hungry and they want bread. Now, in this culture, it was a, a strong unbreakable cultural norm that if somebody came to your house asking for hospitality, you were duty bound to to offer it. In fact, your very honor rested on your ability or your willingness at least to provide hospitality. In fact, not just your personal honor, but the honor of your whole village rested on this fact. So our friend uh, has somebody come to their door, they have no bread, you know, you would just have your daily bread. Give us today our daily bread, it's a prayer, because people had their daily bread. They got it that day, they ate it that day. But sometimes, uh, there would be people with leftover, and everyone in the village would know. So our friend here has no bread, but they know somebody that does. So they go to their friend, or at least the person who they thought was their friend, looking for bread to offer to the person to whom they have to give hospitality. Now. We've got to say that it's not just our friend's honor that rests on this, but now the person who, who has, the, here's the knock on the door, their honor also rests on their willingness and their ability to provide bread so that hospitality can be offered to this stranger. And what we find is a completely unreasonable unwillingness to offer hospitality. Now look, there's the excuses given. Look, my children are asleep. And any of you who've got kids know this one, right? Somebody, somebody knocks on the door. I've just got the kids down. The kids are asleep. 
you know, I've, I've been doing this for three hours. They've been screaming, they've been crying, I've just got them to say, please be quiet, please be quiet. Some of you don't have children, you don't know that, that this emotion is real. Anything, just don't wake up the kids. You know, just please. Despite this, it's actually completely unreasonable, given the context of hospitality. And the whole parable trades on this idea. Our friend is asking something completely reasonable. And the response of the person who won't offer bread is completely unreasonable. But even in the context of that, the shameless audacity, that's the phrase that Jesus uses. I love that. The shameless audacity of our friend will cause the unwilling house owner to act correctly. It's a parable in contrast. The point of the whole parable is this. How much more will a good and generous and gracious father give good gifts to the one who asks? This isn't about praying until God hears you. Just keep going, he's not interested, but eventually if you carry on, you'll get his attention. And a bored and annoyed God will be disrupted by your sheer persistence. How many of you have heard that? How many of you believe that? That's the way that God articulates his interest in you. Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. If, if somebody who is evil, unreasonable, and bone idle, who's lazy, and presumably fairly careless, if somebody like that will get up, how much more will the Father be willing to be awoken? By just the beginnings of the first whisper on your lips. I'm hearing you. Father, yes. What do you want to say? What do you have for me? I'm ready. Come on, let's do something together. Let me hear what's on your heart. How many of us have believed the Father is disinterested? And even if he was interested to start with our wanderings, our wilderness walking, our disobedience have caused an unbreakable barrier between he and us. And yet what Jesus says is, heaven is open, the Father is waiting. He's longing to hear. You know, it's one thing to know the name of the Father. It's quite another thing to have captured and understand the heart of the Father. And what Jesus wants to lead us into is an understanding of God as a good and gracious Father whose dealings with us are not characterized by distance but by intimacy, by closeness. And it is, I believe, at just this point that we are in the midst of a cultural crisis. In other words, it is, I believe the greatest contest we face at the moment in our culture is around the notion of God the good father. I believe we're in a, 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 there is a vacuum almost of fatherhood. There is a crisis of fatherhood. We are around and surrounded by and formed by a fatherlessness. 
Now, like any preacher, I'm just going to sort of make that statement and hang it there and leave it there as if it's self-evident. I, I do want to give some evidence that it is my opinion, but the evidence I have is threefold. Firstly, I believe if we look around as we see a lost generation, some, uh, somebody a few years ago, a pastor actually in Orange County, shared with me this idea of an Esau generation. Now, Esau was one of the sons of Isaac. He had two sons. Jacob and Esau, and Jacob received the blessing. He supplanted Esau. He deceived his father and received the blessing, and Esau doesn't get the blessing due to him. And because of that, my friend says, he goes wandering into the wilderness, presumably looking for the blessing he didn't receive at home. We are an Esau generation. Having not received the blessing that belonged to us, we've wandered away. Seeking like the lost son in Luke 15 to establish our identity apart from God to find some kind of blessing out in the world and we do that in pleasure and uh, relationships and all manner of other things. Just reading uh, yesterday an, an article in the London Times known in England as just the Times but just to distinguish it from the New York or the LA or whatever else you might read. And the level, the, the level of addiction to pornography in my nation is absolutely scandalous. And just re- it's interesting reading someone who was uh, culturally very progressive, even them saying, look, I'm just be- bemoaning this. And the enslavement that we experience and many of us experience in this area is a manifestation, I believe, of a fatherlessness. I mean, quite simply and very, very, just even concretely, like, Where were our fathers when we were being formed by this stuff? And only the Father God himself can liberate us where we've become enslaved. We're an Esau generation. In my country, 75% of the prison population, I mean, in one sense, I'm surprised it's not a higher number. 75% of the prison population have experienced some kind of abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse in their youth. Our prisons are full of people who were misfathered or not fathered at all. What about Friday or Saturday night down the pub? I don't know what it's like here, but in England, like it, it's a rite of passage. If you're young, you go out drinking, you lose yourself, and you spill out onto the streets and do violence to one another. And it used to be just the guys, and now the women are as aggressive as the men. I look around me, I see a lost generation. I see, even on those who maybe aren't acting out in those ways, I see uh, an ache for home. I have an ache for home. A longing to belong. Experience that? Even if you're not acting out in ways that would get the attention of your grandparents. (laughs) Maybe you feel that. The word nostalgia, you've come across that word. Literally, it means an ache for home. It's like we're nostalgic for a place that many of us have never visited. And I want to say that place is not necessarily a physical place. It's funny what happens, isn't it, when you drive around your childhood home? You get that? That feeling of like, oh. oh. And for me, it's, I'm 36 now, almost. It's like, I'm not young anymore. <laughs> Do you remember when I was young? It's, that, it's, that, it's an ache. I experience it physically as an ache. But the place I'm longing for isn't 
that place. The place that we're all longing for, that this nostalgia connects to is not a physical place, although physical place is valuable and important. But it's the heart of the Father. That's the home to which we're aching to belong and to return. The parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, again explains this. It's the Father's embrace that the son was missing all along. We're fatherless. We feel the ache. St. Augustine said, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. We need to come home to the Father. And the third thing we see as evidence of my bold, outlandish statement that we're a fatherless generation is a widespread theological confusion. And here I'm talking not just to the culture, but to the church. In all of this, I'm talking to both. But there is, I believe, a widespread theological confusion about the nature of God. That's what theology is. It's words about God, who God is. And I believe in our culture we see a huge confusion. And there is confusion within the church on this, on this issue. And, and so when things come, when difficulty comes, particularly in the, in the, in the, in the guise or in the uh, frame of human suffering, uh, many people are, uh, to use an image which I'm, I'm going to slightly modify later, shipwrecked. Despite the fact that there are, there are arguments, I'm not going to rehearse any of them now, for why it's possible that God could be good and a father and yet there be human suffering. Despite that, what I see around me, what we've seen in the first three years of Trinity Church, what I see outside the church as well, is that the existence of evil and suffering because there isn't a solid foundation of the Father heart of God, causes people such profound difficulty that they walk away from faith. I guarantee most of us in the room have somebody in our lives, or maybe we are somebody who's wrestling with this question right now, but we have somebody in our lives who we'd say they used to go to church, but they're really, really struggling, and it's because they've experienced a measure of suffering. Now, I'm not diminishing the reality of human suffering. Please don't hear that. What I'm saying is that we as the church, I don't believe, have the same theological resources we used to have and we need in order to live well in the midst of suffering. And that, I believe, has to do with fatherlessness. And I was running earlier this week. I, unbelievable, I know, but I run. <coughs> I have run. And um, it's how I actually pray now. It's the only way I can sort of keep concentrating and, and praying at the same time. And I just felt God just begin to speak to me about our generation, about myself, about even what I was going to say here. And the image he gave me was of a plane. And it was a plane being buffeted by a storm. Now you've experienced this if you've been on a plane probably. It's that horrible thing they call, we're experiencing some turbulence. You're like, no, 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 no. It's catastrophe back here. It's Armageddon. The plane's doing this. Don't call it some turbulence. You know that thing where there's a bit, maybe there's a bit of air differential or something and you just, whoa, you tighten your belt, you hold your loved one's hand and you sort of lie back and hope for the best. I feel like many of us are in that place of turbulence. It's like we are that plane, we're going through it. And you know what can happen if we begin to, if we fail to see where the horizon is after a while, we can begin to modify things and actually the, the plane can in catastrophic situations end up going through what's known as a stall. 
A plane can stall. It loses its momentum and it goes into a stall. Now, they, this is where I believe many of us uh, can get to. This is where many people in our culture are in terms of faith. It's not that they don't have a faith necessarily. It's not that they don't have an interest in God. It's just that they're, they've lost momentum. And in that place of a loss of momentum, I think what I see instinctively many of us doing is pulling up. Whoa, I'm just gonna take a step back. And actually the whole, whole, I think, industry of podcasts has arisen around this. It's almost like the secularization of faith. We want faith, but we don't want it in such a sort of robust Christian way. Let's just begin to sort of allegorize it. Let's take a step back from it. Let's like make a bit of critical distance and let's begin to sort of interpret things slightly differently. I see lots of people doing this. I see lots of people attracted and distracted by this kind of teaching. The pull-up thing, oh, I'll go to church a bit less. I'm just gonna think, begin to think about this a bit more, there you go, rationally. A bit more, I'm just gonna become a bit more reasonable about this. Despite the fact that what's going on is actually not reasonable, but deeply emotionally driven. And I felt what God was saying to me is actually what we need to do in these times of crisis is not to pull up. In fact, what you do when you pull up on the controls of a plane when it's in a stall is make the stall worse. No, we need to dive in. That's what you do in a stall. Apparently, it's totally counterintuitive, but you tip the nose down and you increase the acceleration. It's that that causes a lift in momentum. Air flies under the wings and you're able to level out. Don't pull up on the controls in the store. Push the nose down, increase the engine power. The good news I have to share with you this morning, whether you're in a stall or whether you're in plain sailing, to again change the metaphor, <laughs> is that God is a good father and he is a holy mystery. And however hard we try, we can't completely rationalize our experiences as humans but what the church has always said and what the Bible continues to say and what the Holy Spirit I think is speaking this morning is in the midst of it all, God is good. And that is not just something that we can prove, although I believe Jesus himself is living proof of that. That is what mathematicians call an axiom. Familiar with that word? An axiom is something that's not necessarily provable, but it's taken on faith and because of it, everything else works. One plus one, mathematicians say, is and nobody can prove it. Right? Nobody can prove it. But if it's true, you can prove a whole lot of other things. And the whole mathematics system works. By the way, there's a small point, which is if somebody who, is, uh, somebody who describes himself as not believing in faith but science, just immediately laugh and say, there's no such thing as science without faith. All science rests on faith. How do you believe, for example, that the universe is intelligible? That is a, an articulation of a faith position. It is not something that you can prove. God is a holy mystery. He cannot always be easily explained, but he can be experienced. He can be known personally. And in order to do that, we have to press in in times of difficulty, not check out, because in those moments, there is sometimes the most beautiful gold to be inherited. But we won't be able to do that without this foundation of the goodness of God. And it's my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit would just build that in us, that he would build it in me. We don't get through the confusion by withdrawing. 
Instead, it's by diving deeper into God that we receive a revelation of who he is as Father. We go to God begging for bread, thinking that that's all there is, and we come away with arms full of bread and also the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus teach here? Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We come away not with just bread, but with the Holy Spirit who leads us into a greater knowledge of God as Father. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves again to fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. Let me end with Begum Sheikh's story. So she leaves the hospital and the next day, later that day, here's what happens. She kneels down by her bed, follows the doctor's advice and prays. Oh Father, my Father, Father God. Hesitantly I spoke his name aloud. I tried different ways of speaking to him and then as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh my father God, I cried with growing confidence. My voice seemed unusually loud in the large bedroom as I knelt on the rug beside my bed. But suddenly that room wasn't empty anymore. He was there. I could sense his presence. I could feel his hand laid gently on my head. It was as if I could see his eyes filled with love and compassion. He was so close that I found myself laying my head on his knees like a little girl sitting at her father's feet. For a long time I knelt there, sobbing quietly, floating in his love. I found myself talking with him, apologizing for not having known him before. And again came his loving compassion like a warm blanket settling around me. She got on her knees, she cried out to the father. She asked, she didn't, Beg, but she asked from a place of faith. And God himself, by his Holy Spirit, revealed his fatherhood to her. And it opened up a new phase in her life with God. And we're hearing about it today. It opened up a shameless audacity. That, that ability to go to God and with the real stuff, the real, real, what's really going on in her life. And it birthed an intimacy that was transformational, not just for her, but for those around her. We can be so timid in our prayer life. We can be so, we, we can present God the things that we think he wants to hear, not really what's happening. But the person that understands the Father heart of God is able to pray with boldness, with shameless audacity to offer the real thing, to be honest and to be hungry because God is good. Perhaps it's time for a bit of shameless audacity. Perhaps it's time for some bare-faced confidence. Perhaps it's time to pray the prayers that six-year-olds pray in graffiti on their bedrooms. Do a new thing, God. Perhaps it's time to pray the kind of prayers that lead women, Muslim women, to lose everything but to gain their Father in heaven. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.